0: Well, what else would the title of this sermon be, really? Um, This is the final chapter of 1 Peter. um, This week, Lord willing, we'll have one more sermon on this book. But Peter has struck the note of the eschaton, the second coming, of what he calls the apocalypse, or the revelation of Jesus Christ. He has struck this note Early and often so it's not surprising that he hits it again as he closes the book for him for Peter it is axiomatic meaning it is utterly basic it is everywhere assumed everywhere assumed that the church is an exile people strangers sojourners aliens a people thus Looking for, he says, fixed upon the hope of her heavenly home. Her inheritance, kept for her in heaven, he says, in the opening cadences of the book, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. The apostle never loses sight of this, ever. Even when he's doing some rather straightforward exhorting, as he's doing in this passage. Uh, So here Peter is moving to instruction For the elders of these churches Now while this is a text written to leaders In fact it's a text often used at the ordination Of ministers and I will use it Lord willing at 11 o'clock When we ordain and install officers Nevertheless it's important to hear this Since elders Are And deacons are to be examples of Christian maturity. Right? The text then challenges and speaks to all of us. Right? So with that, we'll make two points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. We'll make them in that order. Shepherding in verses 2 and 3. And then glory, which brackets the text, in verses 1 and 4. Shepherding... And glory. So shepherding, addressing the elders, he says, "Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care." So this this imagery of shepherding, uh, so familiar, but also it's it's beautiful imagery. It's rooted in the ministry of God Himself, Yahweh is the great shepherd king of Israel. The Lord God, the Lord is my shepherd. And because he is the infinite God, replete in fullness, therefore I shall not want. And so it's a metaphor, as you all know, which speaks to us of God's comprehensive care, of God's intimacy With his people, of his defense, of his nourishment of his flock, of his deep desire to draw us to himself and to give himself in fullness to you. And in the fullness of time, the Lord himself, Yahweh incarnate, comes as good shepherd in Jesus Christ. The one who knows his sheep. The one who lays his life down for his sheep. The one who does not lose track of a single sheep. It's a work in many ways, which when you think about it, only God can do. Who else could know us intimately and in our secret thoughts, and our histories, and shepherd us in this comprehensive way? And yet, remarkably... It is a work in which God employs human instruments, human shepherds, under shepherds, if you will. And this human shepherding work, precisely because it's a participation, a reflection of God's own shepherding work, this is a calling then and a vocation of great dignity in the church. Remember who's writing this epistle to us. Right? Peter, who was restored as a shepherd. After his denials, in that famous tender passage at the end of John's gospel where Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Each time, after Peter answers yes, the charge comes back. Feed my sheep. They are, notice, at all times, and this cannot be stressed too much, his sheep. Feed my sheep. Not your sheep. Not even the sheep. My sheep, the Lord says. And in our text here, Peter opens by saying, be shepherds, be shepherds of God's flock. I right? shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Paul says in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders. And so Peter now charges these elders scattered throughout Asia Minor. Be shepherds, tend, love, care for God's flock that is under your care. And what is then the chief thing, the first thing needful for this task? Well, as it was for Peter, so it is for all elders love for Christ. Right? Love for the risen Christ. Real, personal, affectionate, holy attachment to Christ ascended and Christ glorified that is the first thing the chief thing the central thing needed in shepherds do you love me? Christ asks do you love me? do you love me? then and only then feed my sheep feed or give them nourishment wholesome nourishment tender care Notice the text says, shepherd God's flock which is under your care. This literally means shepherd God's flock which is with you or among you. And it highlights the fact that shepherds have to spend time with the sheep, they have to smell like the sheep. It's impossible to nourish sheep from a distance. You know, Luther has this famous saying where he says he only did two things to make the Reformation successful in Europe. He preached the word and he drank beer with the saints. Meaning, I preached and I spent time with the people. That's the whole of ministry right there. He preached... And he spent time teaching and nourishing the saints. There's no substitute for this. There's no shortcuts. There's no modern techniques for shepherding. There's no new ways of doing church that can replace this. This is what shepherds have to do. They have to be out in the field with the sheep. Watching over them, the text says. Watch over them. And the word for watching over the sheep here is the word we get the word bishop from. Or overseer. It carries the idea of sort of looking and scanning around of oversight. A kind of holy superintending aimed at the cure, at the flourishing of human souls. So again, again, when Peter evokes this word, oversee or bishop the sheep, right? the splendor of this calling lies in the fact, among other things, that earlier in this very epistle... Earlier in this very epistle, Peter called Jesus the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He is the shepherd and the bishop of your soul. And into that ministry, elders are called to participate. And then the apostle goes on to describe this overseeing work, this shepherding work. He does it in three ways. Each of the three ways are described Positively and negatively. First negatively, actually, and then positively. So first, he says this. Oversee them, not as if forced, not because you must, that's the negative, but willingly, as God wants you to be. There's the positive. No one should ever serve, the apostle says, as if under compulsion, or as if coerced. It's got to be free service, willing service, rendered in good cheer. And here, let me charge you as the congregation about this. There's a a wonderful word uh, that's sort of associated with this text, a related text in Hebrews 13, that speaks to the flock. And it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There's that eschatological note that Peter's going to bring out here. As those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning so you know you want to do it willingly you want leaders who are willing to shepherd you right who are not groaning but are joyful in doing it because the Hebrews text goes on to say this would be of no advantage to you right the the flock is called to submit themselves to the elders so that the elders work can be free and willing and joyful for the benefit of all the saints now At any time, this work can be difficult and challenging. But in Peter's churches, right, in the first century, the work comes under the dark shadows of suffering and persecution. So remember, to be willing here in Peter's context is not natural. To some extent, it's to put a target on your back. In fact, those who are naturally willing are probably naive. Or working with motives that are not entirely pure. This is a summons. It's a vocation. God's, by His grace, makes us willing. And when He makes us willing, ironically, we are then, in a way, compelled. Not in the bad sense of being dragged into service that we reject, but in the good sense of being under necessity from God. Remember Paul said... And Paul was willing. He was a willing apostle. But he said at the same time, necessity is laid upon me, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That is serving the Lord with freedom, which ends up binding you. I can remember being a young man, uh, talking to an an old, sort of grizzled veteran, reformed pastor in, in, uh, in the heart of Texas, 30 years ago, something like that. And telling him, I think I might want to go into the ministry. And uh, he was at his desk. He always had a pipe in the corner of his mouth. And he doesn't look up, doesn't look up at all. And he says, stay out if you can. <laughs> I said, stay, stay out if you can. he said, yeah, I mean, uh, you, don't, you don't want to get into this because you think it's a vocation or something. You've got to be summoned. That's it's probably overstated advice. I mean, it's probably overstated But his point was, um, this is just not another career choice. You better better make sure that God is calling you into this. And one way to make sure is, stay out if you can. (laughs) So, the point is, it should be done willingly. (laughs) At the summons of God. And the second description, then, of overseeing is, not pursuing dishonest gain, there's the negative, but eager to serve, there's the positive. So these would, by any standard, right, be poor churches. And nevertheless, notice this. Dishonest gain or greed can still be found among the poor. These churches don't have a lot of money. They don't even have buildings. They don't have assets. And Peter has to warn the, the people who might want to serve as elders in them, don't do this for dishonest gain. Right? don't do this for some kind of leverage, monetary or otherwise, right? Do this out of service. And third, he says, overseers should not lord it over those entrusted to them, but rather be role models for the flock. Again, here he's simply just calling us to imitation of Christ himself. We heard this in the gospel lesson, right, where Christ said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, they like to exercise authority. They like to, they like lordship and dominion. Not so with you, right? Whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. That's the pattern for Christian leadership. So traditionally we have said in 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 the Church Catholic and in the Reformed tradition that this means all authority in the Church is what we call ministerial authority. Meaning it's authority in service. It's the authority of service. It's the authority of service in and under and bound to the word of God. And in this, the shepherds have this high calling, one which really should evoke trembling and fear of being examples and models for the flock to imitate, Peter says. They should be able to say, as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is the calling of leadership in the church. But remember this. Remember this. You are not hearing a sermon that does not apply to you. It functions as a a kind of care, a reminder of the kind of care and the kind of character, the kind of love and forbearance and service the whole royal priesthood is to have for one another. You can see that, by the way, if you read the opening prayer that was prayed today. So... Now, so that's the description of what it is to be a shepherd or an elder in the flock from the apostle. But here's what I want you to note. That description is framed by Peter. That was verses 2 and 3. It's framed in verses 1 and 4 in a way which lights up his understanding of leadership and the Christian life in general. And this framing of the whole work is the subject of our second point which is glory glory so to the elders so now I'm back to verse 1 to the elders Peter appeals as a fellow elder he says I'm a fellow elder he could have appealed as an apostle but he doesn't he appeals as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings he's here not just saying I saw Christ suffer in person which he did I know of Judas's betrayal, which he did. I know of my own betrayal. I know of the agony of Christ's sufferings. He's basically also saying my apostolic ministry is a testimony or a witness to the cross. Witness to the sufferings of Christ in which the church in her suffering is drawn. Right? We saw this last week. We saw it a couple times in this series. The church is drawn into the mystery of Christ's sufferings. Right? And in this suffering, Which we are to arm ourselves for, Peter says, about which the church should not be surprised of the fiery ordeal. In this suffering, Peter says here in verse one, we are already partakers and we shall fully share in the text says the glory that is to be revealed suffering unto glory. This is the heart of the book, right? You've, if you've sat through these First Peter series, you've probably heard this six or eight times by now. Peter has seen, notice this in verse 1, he has tasted that heavenly glory in the risen Christ. He has seen the power of Christ coming in the transfigured Lord of light who Peter saw on the mountain. The irradiated one. And so Peter is riveted. I mean, can you imagine having seen the transfigured Christ with your own bodily eyes? How could anything earthly be one's passion after that? So when we read this epistle, we, come, we encounter a man who is riveted and seeks to rivet the church on the coming glory. Right? Union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection creates or produces in us a thorough-going, heavenly-mindedness. Right? Peter has said, Your hope is an inheritance reserved or kept for you in heaven of unfading glory. Fix your hope completely, he says, on the grace to be brought to you by the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. You're tested, he says, so that the genuineness of your faith might result in glory at Christ's appearing. And echoing our text here, and we heard this just last week, he says, "Inasmuch as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, you will be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. That's part one of the framing. So now look down at verse 4. And here a whole bunch of stuff comes together in the book of 1 Peter, in this little verse 4. A whole bunch of stuff converges here. Because here, he makes it clear that all of the references to glory in the book are speaking of that which is unveiled at Christ's coming. That which is presently veiled shall be unveiled when Christ appears. He says here, when the chief shepherd appears. So Christ is the chief shepherd. I mean, he uses men to be sure, but Jesus has not delegated the task of being your pastor to someone else and gone on sabbatical. He remains the chief shepherd of every last sheep. And that's great news. When, Peter says, the chief shepherd appears. Now, if it wasn't clear before, it is now. Right? What Peter speaks of, what he means when he speaks of Christ's salvation being revealed... Or unveiled in glory is this. This appearing is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We saw this in the Old Testament text from Isaiah 40 where Christ comes. He comes as conquering king and he comes as divine warrior. But he also comes as the good and gentle shepherd tending and defending and vindicating his flock. When the chief shepherd appears, he tells these elders, then you will receive a crown of glory. Glory is, and if you're in the evening service, you know this, glory is an eschatological word. Again, all the references to glory in this book, and there's a slew of them, are about this glory. This crown of glory, which will be bestowed on faithful elders when the chief shepherd of the church is unveiled, when he appears in his splendor. And crown of glory here is a metaphor. It's really important to, to get this, right? It's a metaphor. What it means is this. It means a crown which consists of glory. A crown which simply is participation in the glory of God, which is the chief end of man. This crown, you might recall, is what all the promises of God to the overcomers in the book of Revelation, this crown is referring to that. So maybe we can put this slightly different. What is the crown? What is the crown of glory? It is uninterrupted, undefiled, joyful, consummated, face-to-face communion with the triune God in everlasting glory, in eternal Sabbath rest. That is the crown of glory. This glory filling heaven and earth is what the prophets foresaw. Isaiah says this, listen to these words, in that day, Speaking of the day when the chief shepherd appears. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be. Not merely bestow. The Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown. A beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. Right, This is why we are Christians. To receive this crown of glory. In Paul's language... You are now raised with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, same language as here, revealed, unveiled, you too will be unveiled or revealed with him in glory, in irradiated, immortal splendor. That's the promise being made to faithful shepherds. And notice notice also how Peter describes this crown of glory. In verse 4. It's unfading. It will never fade away. Again, this is the full possession. The full enjoyment. Of the inheritance which is now kept for you in heaven. Which Peter spoke of at the beginning of the book. This... Beloved, is the fruition of the covenant. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And you will find that language at the back end of Revelation when the saints gaze upon the face of their Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what we are waiting and looking for the enjoyment of this inheritance which can never perish, or spoil, or fade. So notice the echo. In chapter 1 is, you have an unfading inheritance reserved in heaven. And in chapter 5 here it's, you have a crown of glory which is unfading. It's just two ways of talking about the same thing. Two ways of saying, you are destined to enter into the full possession of the triune God in the face of Jesus Christ in everlasting light. Now, This expectation, this appearance of the chief shepherd, listen to this, it's not something merely future for Peter, right? He already says, I'm a partaker of this glory. It's not something merely future. He tastes it. He's gripped by it. It pervades his consciousness. It fundamentally shapes his ministry and his teaching. He doesn't say something like this, well, of course, someday Jesus will come back and everything will be great, and that's out there somewhere, but for now, we got to do this stuff. That's not what's going on here. But Notice this, it brackets his teaching on being a shepherd. I mean, think of this, beloved. There's four verses here. There's this much text here. This is the shepherd, the leader of the apostolic college, Peter, restored to shepherdhood by Christ himself, the good shepherd, instructing on how to be a shepherd. And in this much text, two of the verses are about the eschaton. I mean, think of that. What kind of a cognitive universe does this guy live in? I'm not in it. I don't meet people in it. Somehow we can talk about ministry. I've got a stack of books on ministry. We can talk about any kind of Christian service. This kind of Christian service, that kind of Christian service. We can talk on it often for years as if the eschaton didn't even exist. Or as if, again, it was something way out there. I mean, listen for it. Here, I challenge you. Listen for this note of participation in already and anticipation of eschatological glory. Listen for that note in the conversations and the evenings and the fellowship times you spend with other Christian people. Right? It's like being dropped into a void of utter silence, it's simply not even present. And Peter has this much text, just a little bit. Verse 1 and verse 4 are about the coming glory of Christ. He doesn't think you can shepherd without it. Right? From, from the beginning to the end, the appearing of the chief shepherd is a vivid reality to him. It shapes ministry, shepherding, and teaching. Paul teaches the same thing. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Paul has this bracing charge also used at ordinations, often, from 2 Timothy 4. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus... Who is to judge the living and the dead. And I charge you by His appearing. Have you ever charged anyone to do something by the second coming of Christ? By the second coming of Christ, I charge you. No, nobody talks like that. I charge you by His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word. Again, this is different from... Someday you'll be judged and Christ will come again. So be faithful now. This is by that appearing out here, I now charge you. I charge you in light of, right, by the currents of that appearing of which you already partake. I charge you in front of the Christ who is to judge and ready to judge the living and the dead. By that Christ, in that way, preach the word. All true ministry, whether of leaders or not of leaders, All true ministry lives in the presence of the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And it lives and it breathes by His appearing. By His coming kingdom. That's why Paul says in that same passage in 2 Timothy 4, he says, There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Same language used here. And not only for me, he says, but for all who love His appearing. So it is because of this appearing, this end, and not any this-worldly goals. Because of the appearing of Christ, the word sounds forth. So, as I mentioned earlier, this is a text which impinges upon us all. What is to be true for leaders is to be generally true for all. And so as I, I close here, I'm charging the elders and the deacons but also the whole flock with a couple of questions that I think the text pointedly asks us. These are the, texts, the questions I ask myself when I, when I read this text. Does my life have the fragrance, the fire, the fundamental orientation of the eschaton, of the appearing of Christ in glory stamped upon it? Does my life have the fire of the appearing of Christ in glory stamped upon it? Does the coming glory shape my thoughts, my prayers, my parenting, my work, my discipling, my service, my outlook, my politics? Does the coming of Christ in glory do any real work in my life now? That's really the question, right? Does the coming of Christ in glory do any real work now? Because it's doing lots of work for Peter now. It's working on every paragraph in this epistle. Or is it, again, merely something that we acknowledge as a future event, and then it's back to regularly scheduled programming? In short, right, ministry and service depend, and this is another way to put this, right? They depend on the answer that Peter gave to that thrice-asked question of Jesus when he restored him. Do you love me? These two things go together. Love for the risen, glorified, and coming, appearing Christ is that without which there can be no living ministry. And the love for Jesus. So again, you might think, wow, well, this, oh, this sounds like a bunch of highfalutin eschatology stuff. Here, I'm going to distill it down and just look at it from another angle. It's simply about love for Jesus. That's all this is about. Right? And here, to paraphrase Paul, I speak as a madman. A love for Jesus that does not want to see him. <laughs> or to gaze upon his face in glory, right, a love that doesn't groan for his coming in glory, is an incomprehensible and absurd thing. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, there's a lot of people who say they love Jesus, but don't particularly seem very interested in actually gazing on his face. Not tonight, anyway. Not tomorrow. Not this afternoon. Right. What does Paul say in Second Corinthians 5? Having the first fruits of the Spirit we groan inwardly longing to be clothed in our heavenly dwelling there is no love for christ that doesn't yearn for his appearing it's incomprehensible it's absurd we want to see the bridegroom's face we don't want to just do christiany things for a couple of decades and then go to heaven And of that face, right? C.S. Lewis says this. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured. What's the text about for you seeking the face of the Lord for the glory of God, the glory, which shall appear shines even now in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is what will fit you and transform you for parenting, for your vocation, for service and the sight of that face when your chief shepherd appears will be your unfading crown of glory. Amen.